All right, this is Congress Two Beers In. I'm Josh Heater, Senior Fellow at the Government Affairs Institute at Georgetown University. I'm here with my colleagues Matt Glassman How you doing? and Laura Blessing. Hiya. We have a very special guest here today. Uh, Sarah Bender from the Brookings Institution uh, is here to talk about Congress uh, over a couple beers that she brought in. Uh, aptly, she brought in DC Brow's The Corruption, the which corruption. is a super right. fitting beer uh, to talk about. Congress. That's right. <laughs> Especially with, you know, some stuff going on in Congress. Uh, is, is definitely applicable, but uh, we may we'll not really... drain the swamp, but we'll drain the can. Yes. <laughs> that's right. That's right, buddy. Oh. Um, I know that's bad. <laughs> so we uh, we brought Sarah in to get uh, to pick her brain about all things Congress, um, and I guess we'll start with where do you think we're headed going into the 116th? 115th was sort of an interesting Congress, uh, not super productive, but where are we headed now that Democrats have taken the House? Uh, so, uh, split party control, here we come, you know, right? <laughs> Democratic House, Republican Senate, the White House, who shall be unnamed. Uh, so, our normal reaction, split party control, historically, not much gets done, right? And so, as a baseline expectation, which would be reasonable given what we've seen lately, probably shouldn't expect much in the way of lawmaking, right? Not much in the way of sort of big problem solving. So name any of the big issues on the agenda that they've been working on or talking about. Gun regulation, immigration, climate change, um, fixing the Affordable Care Act, doing more tax cuts, looking at the debt, um, right? My guess is none of that at the end of the day, really, uh, that there's much action on it. Um, We could be, at the end of the day, overestimating the likelihood of nothing happening. So we should talk a little bit as we go along here about... So most of us have it at like 0%. <laughs> so like, there's a 1 to 2... The point. optimist caucus. I guess like where's greater the range than zero. that you're at? Is it 10% or is what, it 1.5%? Yeah, I mean, one question is how much of that is a truly recent modern development because we can think of major legislation that happened under periods of divided government in sure. the past. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not a ton, maybe not as much as Mayhew thinks, but still some. But there's a kind of sense in Washington that nothing is going to happen now. Like the idea of something like... 86 tax reform happening now, it just seems like a non-starter. People just laugh. And I, so I think that's a great question of whether, is there a room where Trump could surprise you and say, I want to do a major infrastructure package, and Schumer could surprise you and say, you know what, we don't mind doing that uh, right now. Is, is, that re- is that absolute fantasy world? Because my sense is that's fantasy world. But I, I, in the back of my head, I'm like, well, maybe people are over, overweighting this. So the question is, in whose interest is it to get something done, and what do we really mean by get something done, mm-hmm. right? So think, we do have some episodes of, so think of the context, upcoming presidential election years. And our normal, we think, presidential election year, divided government, everybody wants an issue to run on, not laws to run on. Mm-hmm. But we do have examples that are different. And the one that always comes to mind is Clinton, 95, 96. And obviously a lot going on in that Congress, but they did major welfare reform. Mm-hmm. They did some uh, major environmental laws, right? There was some sense that, look, so we do so little here. We have to show both Republicans and Democrats. We need something to show voters that we can do something, right? Or not a presidential. Well, also presidential election year, 2015, 2016. I think McConnell said, "Look, um, I've closed the gates for the entirety of the Obama administration, but I've got moderates running, and I need them something to run on." Mm-hmm. They did no child left behind mm-hmm. reform after almost mm-hmm. 10 years. They finally funded the highway bill. They mm-hmm. said, hey, let's steal the money from the Federal Reserve. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> that play will come back again, I bet. Um, so they, they found they did a, a handful of others, right? Two debt deals along the way. So the question is, is it in anybody's interest to find an issue where certainly this incoming class has some, and the House has some incentive to sure. show? Is it prescription drugs, right? Is it student debt? Is it... Now, these green new deals. Green, that seems like a <laughs> stretch. A stretch. <laughs> but is there something or any of these issues where, right, in the context of there'll probably be a spending deal, right, and at least for dealing with the caps in two years, yeah, I mean, less than less than two years, yeah. right? There will be opportunities of things leaving the station where they might say, "Gee, um, we can't go for the zero baseline. We got to get it up to." Have something. I mean, when we say that, though, what do we actually mean? What actually has to leave the station? Well, the debt limit has to be raised. Yeah, right. Presumably, the BCA caps have to be raised. Right. 
and the 19 appropriations bills have to be done, and the 20 appropriation bills have to be done. And that really, besides those, you wouldn't say anything else uh, has to be done, right? And NDA right, will happen, but NDA is not going to take outside policy riders on, on crazy things. And is it true that the median freshman Democrat or just the median Democrat in the House really needs to show something for these two years as in legislation? It's not clear to me they do. No, and in the, think of it this way, right, Democratic House... Some people say, "Look, they're just gonna they're just gonna message and they're gonna do oversight." But but messaging, right? That will require them to pass stuff through the House and then yeah, dump it on the Senate. Right? You've seen that play before. But that's really um, that that may be sufficient. Right, and that's well short of lawmaking. Right? Yeah. I mean, sure. they, can, they can pass all the you know voter restructuring bills they want and the anti-corruption bills they want, but if those aren't going to go anywhere, that's not even, like, big things. Yeah, that's no. sort of... Sure. I mean, not, not, not big things, but they aren't the big things we think about in terms of taxes. And, and or, you know, they're already working on, you know, H.R. 1, which is a purely going to be a messaging bill. Yeah. You know, this has... Uh, it's it's being billed as an anti-corruption bill that has, uh, you know, they've got ethics things in there from sexual harassment um, to, you know, campaign finance uh, aspects of it, um, to, you know, having the president need to disclose his tax returns, which gives you any idea of the likelihood of that passing, um, to a whole bunch of uh, voting rights uh, innovations, including automatic registration. So this is zero chance of going anywhere. But it's, as you point out, it's a very effective uh, messaging tool. How much does the appearance of criminal justice reform as a possible compromise bill right now change your thinking about going forward? Because that... It's surprising yeah. to me out of the gate, but it is one of those issues that has kind of common carriers across the parties and is ripe for these things like this. But my baseline assumption is that is somehow a giveaway by the Republicans. And in, in, in the opposite situation, situation, Schumer is not about to give the president any kind of goodies in the next two years equivalent on the other side. Yeah, I've been trying to understand what the Republican interest in criminal justice reform is, and there's certainly pockets of it, right? Yeah. The Mike Lee, yeah. Mike Lee, for sure, for, right? Yeah. Well, Grassley has a bill that you know McConnell's holding up, but Grassley's got a lot of support for it. Yeah, so well, I wonder whether we're over. I mean, it's hard to know. It's like, what's McCon- why is McConnell stopping this? Like, is the opposition? 20 senators? Is yeah. it half the conference? Right? Is it is there less support than meets the eye? Or is he really pulling a fast yeah. one on the White House when he says, oh, I I think right. That's my sense of it. I mean, when, when you think about criminal justice reform, it's like you mentioned, like it's Mike Lee, it's Jeff Flake, it's um, Rand Paul, it's these people on the far right that have these ideas about, you know, lowering the burden on spending and correctional facilities and all that other stuff. And then you have folks on the left, the far left, right? So like Bernie Sanders, Sheldon Whitehouse, some of these yep. other people. It's, it's sort of like polls uh, coalition that are trying to push this through. And it's, it's it strikes me that your, your hunch is right, that it's probably a sizable portion of the majority that are just like, I don't necessarily Is there any Democratic no votes for this? Uh, I'm sure. There's somewhere. I don't know them off the top of my head, but I'm, I'm sure oh, of it. That's a good question. Um, because, but, I mean, if there's not, then numerically it has a, major, you know, has a simple majority in the Senate. Right. I mean, because there's definitely a handful of yes votes on the Republican no, side. No, I mean, they, they've got at least, like, 60 for support. I mean, it's, it's, this is a McConnell um, has decided that it's not in his interest to bring it up. Um, you know, I think I think it's fascinating. I mean, I mean, I think the policy is fascinating too. I mean, we've we've gotten to a point where people realize that it actually costs a lot of money to ruin people's lives, <laughs> um, and you know, you have interesting people who are you know putting uh, putting their names on uh, something substantive. It'd be interesting to see where it goes. And going back to the question about um, like what could they really do and what counts as lawmaking, and you guys know the appropriations process better than I do. But look, that's really become the the vehicle for pretty much a lot of the stuff, right? Yeah. Stuff does get done. It's just in the guise of, you know, uh, so the Democrats' health agenda the last couple of years, community funding for community health centers, um, trying, trying to deal with some of the subsidy questions, right? Packaging them that way. And that's the ground on which they've really, right, they have pure leverage because of the filibuster in the, the Senate. So. Right. The question is, and maybe that gives rise to kind of small bore legislating, right? It could be on opioids money, right? There, there is opportunity there for sure. For, uh, of course, and the, for members it, to come. Of course, right now it brings you to kind of the border wall, which is holding up yeah. everything. And I, I was speaking to someone on the Hill yesterday who thought the Republicans would convince the president to punt on this to a CR into next Congress just to lay it on the Democrats now and have to have them deal with 
the entire 19 package when they'd rather just put it behind them with a deal right now, um, even if the Republicans ultimately lose. I don't know how I think about that, but I can see them selling the president on using this as an issue. I can see him digging in and saying he wants a, uh, a, to keep the main promise of his campaign. And it kind of goes to a deeper question on the Republican side is like, who's actually driving the cart? legislatively, and I don't really know how to think about whether it's McConnell or the White House, and when they get headbutting, who ultimately is going to win. Yeah, I don't know, and then add on top of the calendar here, right, December 21st, mm-hmm. 20th, is really not a great time to get lawmakers to want to... Yeah, our, our recent CR this. was yesterday extended, you know, uh, we've got funding it extended till uh, December 20, 21st, which is what uh, Professor Bender is referring to, which is going to make for a very bad uh, holiday for many, many congressional staffers. <laughs> but I don't think, I, I mean, I don't think the Democrats are going to be thrilled with an, another CR, right? Like That's right. not really what they want to be thinking about in the spring. No. And, and it, you know, whether if the Republicans fold then rather than now, that's something of a victory for the Republicans. If this stuff has to be continued on until into March or whenever, um, and, but I don't. The prospects of actually getting a deal now do seem almost completely gone, right? The the you know this is sort of a good example of how contingent politics just blow things up. If there ever was a chance of a deal, the Bush funeral sort of just get, takes away all the space to do it. And as soon as you put in a CR before Christmas, it really looks like a clock wind out now. They're just cutting another subsequent deal. Um, but all the bills are done. That's the thing. It's like they're just sitting there. There's nothing. This is all about the wall. That's the only thing going on here. They have all the bills ready to go, and they're all in agreement, basically, on all the bills. Uh, because the BCA cap deal's done, and that's all that really matters to the vast majority of members is that top-line number when it comes to this stuff. Right. Um, and so once the, the bills are done and you're just sitting at immigration, then it's just a game of chicken and a brinksmanship, and I, I have no idea how that's going to play out because... I have no ability to assess kind of the president's stubbornness on this. I well, tend nobody, to see him as someone else talks big, <laughs> but tends to, he tends to give in and yeah. sign this stuff and just go with what the congressional leaders want to do. Um, but this seems perhaps to be the one issue where you might have a significant exception to that. Well, sure. There is usually a tweet after he said he's going to <laughs> <laughs> Then Ryan will make his last phone call to the White House. <laughs> 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 and then I'll sign I mean, I don't, I don't get a sense that Republicans are going to shift their politics at all anytime soon. So I don't expect them to suddenly form a majority on an omnibus-type spending bill, like out of nowhere, right, even though it's a small one. Um, so it really does come, I mean, it, that is the calculation, though. I think if, like, suddenly if a Republican majority formed in order to get, like, border wall money into the final package and then send out to the Senate, well, that puts Democrats in an entirely different position. Um, and I think the president has much more leverage to start push through at least a small amount of funds. But Nancy Pelosi's already come out, like none, like zero. In fact, we're going to CR that entire bill, right? So have fun, <laughs> essentially what she's saying. She's betting they don't have the votes. I would believe her just off the bat. But that's that seems to be the only real play that's left here. I mean, you think they would force a, a Democratic filibuster in the Senate if they could? Cause I, I don't but, think Democrats have the stomach to do that. If, if you're looking at the next Congress and you're trying to get everything off the table that's going to potentially wind up or wind down or distract from whatever message you're trying to do, particularly in an oversight Congress where you've got tons of stuff you would love to look at and not invade your news cycle. I think the big play here is, yeah, I think you just sort of eat that at that point in time. I don't know that. I mean, maybe you put up a fuss and say, oh, my gosh, and you push it to, like, December 22 or December 23, but I don't So you think if they, if they pull the DHS bill out of the rest of the package and put it on the House floor with more border funding, you still don't think they could get a party-line Republican vote to go for it? That, I, I mean, that's they, what you, I think they could. They, uh, they might. I think that's, the, that's what we're trying to weigh here. I think right. if they could do that, it changes the calculus entirely, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you know. To the politics around December 21st become very interesting. Um, and How many Republicans slash, are going to be in town? Yeah, yeah, I know. That's the other point, is that nobody wants to be here. But, um, I, you know, it's sort of like reinventing the wheel right now for House Republicans, and I don't know that that's going to happen over the next couple of weeks, at least on appropriations. Right? Well... So. Our, uh, you know, joint select committee has not fixed the entire uh, budget process for it, <laughs> sadly enough. Um, I think everyone probably saw that coming. Uh, they were unable to report even any recommendations. Do you guys uh, remember, do you guys remember how much, like, not like fake hope, but actual hope there was in Washington that the super committee might oh, yeah. actually do something? Oh, man. So I feel like that was really the moment when 
people decided that there's no such thing as a select committee <laughs> in the House or Senate that's ever going to solve a major issue. You know, that, that was the end. Of, like that fooled me for the last time with the super committee. My, my favorite <laughs> thing was just watching the Joint Select Committee and like the I think it was the first hearing you had Douglas Holtik and being like, so you have almost no time to do this, <laughs> and uh, maybe you could do like tiny things that might sort of be productive. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, you the, your, the witnesses that you choose, and sure, this is a big deal. The former CBO director, the witnesses you're, you choose are usually there to kind of kiss your ass a little bit <laughs> and he's just sitting there saying yeah the odds of a whole lot happening with this uh you know committee are not particularly high <laughs> you know the super committee was so long ago even though it was only what 2013 but my it's photo like 40 years ago yeah. 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 <laughs> my, like my photoshopping skills have gotten like how much time it took me to <laughs> <laughs> superman s and so i did enjoy the super committee so what's your assessment of the of the large incoming freshman class um, in congress so i think we Keep the context in mind. It's still a sm sort of small majority, right, if you think about the Democrats generally. So if it's, assuming we'll come to by Pelosi, if it is whoever is the, the speaker or the leader of the House Democrats, yeah, there's not a lot, of, a, a lot of wiggle room, right? Not a big margin if they want to do something. And then this incoming class, it's, there are going to be a lot of divisions in this, in this Democratic majority. And it's not to say that it at least... I don't think the headlines will be, well, headlines, who knows, but it won't be like the, the civil war, I think, that we were seeing in the fall of 2016 with uh, with the Republicans. But there are a lot of cross-cutting cleavages that are coming to the fore. So certainly the, the progressive angle of the uh, incoming Democrats um, weighed against, I don't know that I call them, I would call Pelosi, right? I wouldn't call them centrist, but maybe the activists versus the pragmatists, possibly, or the outsiders versus the insiders. So there's going to be yeah. the, or maybe just the, we're in a rush and, hey, this is, that's not how Congress works. <laughs> 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 Uh, we saw the, the tweets that were coming out the other day from the Harvard, I guess they're a bipartisan orientation, right. and yeah. as much, it was right. like the Wall Street wing of the I, Democratic Party, and right. the, all these incoming freshmen, it was like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> there's Cortez money. had a yeah. nice little list of the number of speakers they had who were corporate speakers, right. labor union speakers, right. and, yeah. and, you know, and... More power to her. She's representing her constituency, but boy, I can just imagine how that went over in the leadership offices. <laughs> Man, not yeah. a lot of Democrats. <laughs> a lot of, let's 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 list the constituencies that we that we currently that we well, currently I, represent. Yeah. It includes Connecticut, New York, Delaware, New Jersey, Boston, Massachusetts. I mean. There's going to be a lot of friction, especially on this front. So there's there's that dimension, but you know, think about all the members who are winning, who won on, incoming members who won on Republican and suburban yeah. Yeah. turf. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's, those are right in, in New Jersey. Yeah, right. <laughs> and yeah. others, yeah. financial yeah. capital yeah. centers. So that's going to be a different, this isn't going to be a unified incoming freshman class for sure. Right, especially on like Wall Street reform type stuff, Wall right? Where like, oh, we want to put Dodd-Frank back in place and a lot of Democrats are like, oh, it's fine, where it is. Actually, either. we've been undercutting it for years. <laughs> That's right. No one's noticed and I called us on it. several of those bills. <laughs> yeah, so. I can't remember who said it to me. Someone said to me this week that, you know, you want all these R plus two seats and like these are the most progressive Blue dog, not blue dogs, but progressive, like centrist type Democrats they've ever seen, but they're still centrist type Democrats. And they've expanded the number of Democrats in the House by adding seats that are in the middle or slightly to the right, and by getting safe seats and filling them with people who are now even more progressive than the people who are in those seats. And that is a stretching of the party both yeah. directions. Mm -hmm. Well, and the progressive, you know, caucus is, is you know, going to be two fifths of the entire Democratic caucus. You know, that's a that's a big change. They're, they're getting something like 20 new members are coming in. Um, and they're starting, you know, these, these folks are trying to, to, to demand a, a seat at the table um, and, yeah. and different things. I mean, now, how much uh, that gets done um, in a incredibly hierarchical chamber 
is kind of anybody's guess. I mean, like, what what do you think that they'd be able to demand? I mean, that's another one of these. I mean, that's that the leadership is getting hit on both sides, right? right. The problem solvers caucus. We can come to them. Right. Right. And air quotation marks here. Younger members, sort of the how you gonna open up the process? Yeah, problem solvers in the leadership now too. David Cicilline. <laughs> in the leadership. Still have to run for it, man. Um, John's going to hand it to him. That's funny for an internal reason. Yeah. Right? We probably apologize to the constituents of Rhode Island. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, mean, I Moving on. I think that there's this, this open question of how much Democratic divisions will reflect kind of Republican divisions of the last 10 years. And, you know, one thing that we can see that's already not being put back in the bottle is it doesn't seem like the Democrats have any better ability to bind their caucus to votes for the speakership than the Republicans have over the last 10 years. We don't seem to be going back to the days where you're going to unify the party around a speaker and get zero no votes or dissenting votes. Um, on the other hand, I have a hard time picturing the progressives or kind of, I don't know what we're calling the new R plus two district Republicans. I call them blue dogs, but that's obviously not correct. Yeah, um, only seventeen the, of those. Right. If those if those people uh, or the progressives are have any kind of inclination to play freedom caucus and threaten direct action on the floor as a unified body, um, but you know I, you know I was you know I talked to a reporter a, a couple of days ago who was skeptical that Pelosi had this lockdown for speaker. And thought, like, there's a not, and not, you know, a better and zero chance that they actually do try and lock her up on the floor. And she goes there without the votes and tries to call their bluff. And that would be an indication to me that we're going to have a, a bigger fight. Um, I don't really believe that. I feel like she's got this thing in the bag. But, um, you know, maybe we're overestimating how much even basic unity there will be in the Democratic Party in the House. Yeah, but also keep in mind, so when the Republicans came in in 2011, right, my impression was there was a sort of pretty strong kind of educational element that was going on, right? right? But, but in part because of the young guns, they'd really recruited these uh, freshmen who came in, and there was like this learning experience. Like you didn't get an organ, you didn't really have an organized Tea Party. There right. was a Tea Party caucus, right. but right. it didn't right, right, really right. do anything. Yeah. Right. And they managed to like absorb this wave of right, members to come in, and so right. they didn't really have that fractious first year. They were just so giddy about about yeah. being in power and, mm-hmm. you know, stuff, debt, budget control acts, spending cuts, mm-hmm. right? They, they were really um, pretty... No, they, they made concessions. Change. I mean, they put Noam and Scott into the leadership, yeah. right? They had to deal yeah. with them yep. prior to the start of the Congress. But you're right. Once the Congress began, they were uh, quite unified. But, but I think even, that's really good context. I mean, they don't formally organize as the House Freedom Caucus until two years later. I mean, they don't have their own thing. And, and they're not even know. called that until 15. Right. 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 So. And then they're really right. organized outside yeah. the chamber. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, it's easy I, to forget all this. You know, with, with Pratt being the best example, there was disgruntlement with the you know, I don't know what Congress that is, in 2011-12 with the leadership that led yeah. to these sorts of things, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, again, I would be surprised if even that played out now with the Democrats. It seems to me that the, you know, the unifying force against Trump will be enough alone to hold them in line on, like, a basic message against corruption and against the president. Well, and here's, here's where it gets really interesting. If you wanted to draw a parallel to 2011, which I think is the appropriate one, and these are this is a this is a historic freshman class for Democrats, right? We haven't seen this many Democrats come in since Watergate, right? And they right. people <laughs> disparagingly called them Watergate babies, right? <laughs> um, which I didn't know people was derogatory. For, until forgot right, was derogatory, yeah. Right, but it's the class right. of '74 came in with a lot of like, we're going to upset the system. We're going to do things our way. We're not going to listen to leadership. We're not going to go the way that you want us to. We're going to carve our own path, sort of thing. And I I do wonder if. Democrats, this this wave of Democratic freshmen, although they aren't aligned in the same way probably as the Tea Party folks, um, I wonder if they're going to push their advantage in a way that uh, would mirror the Freedom Caucus. I mean, the Freedom Caucus' first two years in office was like, well, we don't like John Boehner handing down the legislative agenda to us, right? Is that going to, I mean, how, how the leadership and how they manage this new class of freshmen um, is going to have a very, very difficult time because I think a lot of the members that are coming in have that same sort of, we're going to carve our own niche yeah. uh, and not listen to, we're not going to get along to go along, so to speak. I, I think that's unlikely. I mean, I think you have a lot of liberals who are in the chattering class or wherever who kind of wish to be as effective in their stated you know, policy goals as the House Freedom Caucuses because they vote as a block and whenever they decide to vote on something they can make their voices heard. And I think it's just 
unlikely for these incoming progressives to be as influential because they don't have as big of a margin in the House as the you know Republicans did. Um, and I also just think they're unlikely to be able to stick together uh, as much given some of the you know different districts that they're representing. Um, it's also a question of you know. Um, what would be what would be their their stated policies? I mean, I think that was a little you know to stick together on. I mean, I think that was pretty clear for the House Freedom Caucus. Oh, you know, it's budget stuff, it's debt ceiling, um, but you know we're not gonna we're not gonna affect every issue area. And it's like okay, well, what's the hill that they want to die on for right. these progressives? Like, I don't I don't know what that is. I mean, I, I think they all have ideas, but the ideas where they're going to vote as a block, I have no idea. Well, the Progressive Caucus has always seemed willing to accept the idea that they'll get a vote on their budget that will fail and then they will just vote for the Democratic budget. And that's right. a big difference in the Freedom Caucus, right? Yeah, You're not going to bring difference. them through direct action. Who cares? I do think that the freshmen are qualitatively different in the modern age now because they're so much more self-aware and better known nationally. They have better fundraising networks. They are celebrities already and they can't be put into kind of the head down, hand out, mouth shut mode that the leadership would like to or traditionally would have put these people. And so they don't even have the sort of ignorance that past freshmen would have about influencing the caucus or about influencing HRS5 on the rules package or, you know, leveraging their power now on the speakership vote for committee seats. I mean, all this stuff is always going on, but I don't think freshmen are nearly as controllable as they once were. They're just too well augmented with their own funding bases and power bases and messaging bases in the modern yeah. era. And that's a huge challenge for leaders, and I don't know what you do about it. Um, the, the, the compromises Pelosi seems to be making, I mean, if she gives in on the term limits for chairs, that's not my favorite thing for sure, but it may be necessary for her to hold on power, and then we're going to get the same sort of, if that sticks, then you're going to be in the same boat the Republicans are in, where you're going to end up with committee chairs who just don't have a lot of expertise, which is... It's yeah. a huge, terrible development. But the freshman will be all for it, right? She's going to have those be her you know, best friends when they know that they can move the committee ranks in less than 20 years or whatever. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And we've seen just, you know, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, or, or AOC, as she's now known in this mm-hmm. office, um, mm-hmm. you know, be extremely outspoken before she even gets into office. I mean, she's making a lot of news. She's got a lot of Twitter followers. And she's she's demanding things. Now, whether or not she gets the things that she demands is, is anyone's guess. But you do you do see this learning curve that Matt's, uh, Matt's referring to. Um, and yeah, I, I feel the same way about uh, you know term limiting committee chairs. I think that probably actually ends up, <laughs> I mean, not just giving up control to House leadership, but also kind of the Senate too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's still. I mean, that's a little surprised to see her. That's sort of a sign, seemingly a sign that things aren't quite. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Yet, but because the other things like the problem solvers, what they're asking for was just sort of layering right. on things that so long as the leadership is running the rules committee, none of that really right. matters. Yep. Yeah. And to right. some degree, right. none of any of this matters if the rules committee can can get their rules approved, um, can get the 218, right? And so some of the question is how, like, are the freshman class, are they going to be, like, work, are they going to get, get these things they can claim credit for and work on working through the system, right? Take it on a suspension, uh, what, whatever it is that they are going to need, can they get that through this currently centralized you know, system? Yeah, I, we're so used to senators running for president, right, in, in the second Congress of an administration term, and that kind of just like, that's a feature of the Senate, that you're going to have X number of people from the opposition party who are running for president, and the Senate's going to have to deal with that. And the House obviously doesn't as often deal with people running for president, just very rarely or just occasionally. But Or now. Right. Just <laughs> having celebrities, right? Like one thing about being in the Senate is like you have people who are bigger than the Senate. They're national figures, right? But in the Senate, they're very powerful individually. In the House, you have people who are now suddenly national figures like AOC who are going to have to deal with the reality that a freshman member of the House really has no power to do anything. And most of the time is advised, probably well so, to strategically work on clamping up their district, right, and making sure they're doing good service for their district and waiting their turn and moving a few suspension bills that do local things and getting their name on a couple amendments that are important and interesting bills and give them floor speeches. And it's very hard for me to picture people like AOC satisfied doing that for any length of time. Forget six or eight years until they're a subcommittee chair or something, even two years, right? Let's not forget the the, the members who have come in. 
uh, and replaced a, a lot of very safe seats from retiring members before. I mean, we've had several years of a Democratic minority, and you've had a lot of progressives come in and fill those seats. Um, and so uh, I'm thinking primarily of like Pramila Jayapal from uh, Seattle. Uh, there are a lot of other progressive leaders who have now have a majority platform to speak from, and they're going to have a lot of demands. And it's going to be interesting to see how these new freshmen attach themselves to the existing membership who are going to be more than willing to adopt them into their ranks. Um, this is going to be really interesting, like how the CPC does this. How do they recruit them? If they recruit them, is that something they're willing to do? Because um, remember, like the, the wave of freshmen that came in in '74, they didn't just like arrive and were suddenly reformers. Like they <laughs> attached themselves to the Democratic Study Group, who had been there for like a decade right? or, or more. Yeah, it's just as a reminder, like this broader electoral context matters, yeah. right? You come in '74 versus, or even coming 2016 versus what it means to come in 2018 as yep. a referendum on, yes. uh, right, on, on Trump. Yeah. So I got a, I got an email couple weeks ago out of the blue from a professor in a different discipline, different university that I didn't know, and uh, he said a friend of his had just got elected, and um, this person <laughs> wanted to know if he could recommend, looking for good political science research on what makes for effective member. Oh, oh my God. God. <laughs> 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 and I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I have something for you to read. <laughs> I'm going to hat tip Craig Bolden's research right now. Hi, Craig. <laughs> very nice website. Data and summaries and research. A little, cool. Throwing a little Mayhew and Yeah, yeah. Man, You're good. This is Boom. in science. <laughs> <laughs> Not just politics. <laughs> I was pretty darn excited. <laughs> I should say, my, my favorite player in this whole Democratic drama over the speakership is Marsha Fudge, and it's not even close. <laughs> she's done so well. Yeah. She, yeah. There's no chance she parlayed into a there was chair no position of a subcommittee. Yeah. Speaker, yeah. And she got herself a subcommittee yeah. on the very issue that is most important to her voters. Yeah. People are poo pooing this. Like, this is a bad thing. This yeah. is an incredible job by her. Like, I, you know. Like, <laughs> Lawmakers have to be good at extracting value from situations, and this is a situation where, for minimal pain, like, <laughs> Pelosi's not going to hate her or not going to cut her off from anything. There's a little bit of effort for a week and a half, yeah. and she got exactly what she wanted. This is, to yeah. me, that's brilliant legislative, you know, field craft. Yeah. Yeah. And no one said, people are, like, laughing at her or whatever. Like, I mean, are you kidding me? This is great. Well, she just made an ally by opposing somebody. And, you know, she's like, I want black women to have a seat at the table, and I, I care about voting. And Pelosi's like, yeah, let's yeah. do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Pelosi could have been a couple steps ahead of. Right. I wonder. things where I wonder how coordinated it was. Like, yeah. listen, what I'm going to do? I'm going to go there and I'm going to yell at you. I'm going to call you an elitist, and you're going to give me a subcommittee. That's how it's going to go. Right? It's home in time for Thanksgiving. <laughs> if we have this wrapped up by Wednesday. That'd be fantastic. I mean, I think Pelosi is good at this too, though, right? Like, I mean, you know, this basic principle of like just. Figuring out what you're going to do and then getting people to pay you off to do it is sound strategy for any legislator. Right. And Fudge did wonderful with that. I love it. And, but I think Pelosi is playing this game a little bit, too, because she she can promise the same thing to lots of different people, things right. she's already going to do, she can bargain with. Right. Like, you know, I don't think she's ever cared that much about the term limits for committee chairs. It just helps her. Yeah. And so giving that away as, like, a right. shit is, like, more power to her, right, if she's going to strategically... Well, she can also promise to consider things or promise to give yeah. away things. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I think that... She's going to, you know, I think she's going to deliver on things for, you know, for Fudge, for example. But, you know, it, the Congress hasn't started yet. You know, she, she hasn't, none of these things are materializing yet. She's just, you know, responding to very quick news cycles in a very, like, advantageous way. So kudos to whoever dreamed up the... But it's the 290 if we get to oh, oh my god. god. And this is exactly what I want to yeah. so Let's it's contrast. It's called let's a discharge petition. Yeah. Yeah. If you have it, it's yeah. called suspension. Yeah, yeah, if you yeah. have that many, you don't need <laughs> that. <laughs> the consensus calendar is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking with, with a, a, an acquaintance of mine who uh, we talked process at one time. It's like, and he really pointed out, like, this is all like dead processes <laughs> that, that have previous, died previous oh, yeah. lives, right? Um, that have come back and been pulled out of the garbage can, like dusted off, and then reintroduced. And my, my question is, what are the problem solvers getting out of this? Right? These are all non-used processes for the most part. And I wonder if, I mean, obviously there's some things in there that they would love to see done. I just don't understand what they're extracting from this particular so debate. So one possibility is they're 
and I don't know if this is it, right? They're calculating, we need to win here. It's just any win. And win, mm. and let's not ask for things we're not actually going to get, or let's right. put a whole list, but what we really want are these three Two, that we yeah. know we're going to Which are all really get. weak. Yeah. And then, then Pelosi, right? This is just like the, the story of institutions. We'll just layer on yeah. things that already exist. In assistance the assistance. She flat out <laughs> loves some of these things, right? Let's get rid of the ability to fire you. She's like, done. What's <laughs> next, right? <laughs> 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 really twisted <laughs> my arm here, guys. The bargain over the motion to vacate is amazing. Uh, <laughs> the problem solved is one from the leadership. I want to make it harder for you to lose your job. I'm going to have to think that one over, fellas. <laughs> what else can you put in there? I need Thanksgiving. Yeah, back to you. Give me a week. That's really tough. Now, what else do you have to ask? <laughs> I, mean, I do wonder what the, I mean, it is, it is, they obviously want to do something, right? And I don't know which of those things it was, but like the consent calendar, that was something that existed and died because it was never used. Like calendar Wednesday, that's something that existed and died in its current, in its previous form because it wasn't used. It was um, calendar Tuesday. Yeah. If you're right. angry yeah. for calendars, you're barking up the wrong you want a calendar? You want a new the calendar? Brighter calendar? No, not a, you can't get anything. Yeah, we'll call it a new calendar. Let's call it new calendar. <laughs> <laughs> problem solver calendar. <laughs> <laughs> Put on the problem solver calendar. Make it the problem solving calendar. Put that, all like be, what thirty six of be, our names well, on the it? House yeah. Union and problem solver. Send calendars. out a press release. You want a problem solving calendar? <laughs> We've done main <laughs> union. <laughs> Credit claiming. I, I just that in my undergrad college class. Uh, calendar names, uh, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It would be better if they did spice up the names of the calendars. Like discharge, <laughs> union, house. Right. Like these aren't these aren't fun. These are right. not fun. Problem solvers is getting right. closer. Right. We need acronym calendars. <laughs> yeah. They'll be the AOC. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's exactly right. They'll be the architect. Yeah. Get this blue dog calendar. <laughs> <laughs> Want another concession? Yeah, here's another calendar we won't use. <laughs> the, the moderate wing of the party. New Democrat calendar. Go ahead. Go for it, guys. Go for it. You get every Monday we're in session yeah. before noon. <laughs> okay, okay. You have all Friday. We'll give you Wednesdays. Hey, it's the no labels calendar. It's for every member who's not associated with the party. Sundays. Yeah. How do you feel about coming on a Saturday? <laughs> Do you like staying after flyout? Good. <laughs> Calendar Saturday. <laughs> In fact, we'll give you a whole hour at the end of the legislative week. We'll call it not Gomer Hour. <laughs> you can just talk about whatever you want to talk about. <laughs> Ready, go. <laughs> Jeff Fumes calendar. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Fumes Everybody calendar. else is left. That's, 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 that's good. But I, I do wonder what uh, what is it anyway. Well, I mean, I, I do think that the entire problem-solving caucus is something of just a messaging device. I don't see them as seriously, like, leveraging any kind of credible threat to bind themselves on the floor with the other party. And I don't take their kind of demands as actual, like, good governance intentions to fix the House. Maybe a little bit, but, like, I mean, reforming the discharge calendar? Come on. Yeah. yeah. Right? Give me a break. Well, I mean, like, what, you know, what rules changes of substance, you know, do people see being entertained in any way. I mean, we're, we're seeing some talk about, like, bringing earmarks back again. You know, like, Nita Lowy is, you know, incoming chair of appropriations, had, has had made some noise along these lines. Um, you know, I think there are other kind of productive potential uh, reforms that we could talk about, but none that I've actually heard get a voice. What do you think? So, so here's my uh, N3. I don't know. So, right, think about other episodes, historical episodes, right. where there has been some this procedural yeah. movement, but the procedure is always connected to policy, right? Mm -hmm. But but they've been centrist, they've been centrist coalitions, they've been bipartisan coalitions, mm. whether it's the 20s, whether it's the 70s, that's my N2. Uh, <laughs> right? But if you're in a polarization, you're not going to link arms with, there's just, there right. aren't common policy areas the other side, where you're going to meet, right, to have that, to keep your leverage, particularly over the speaker, and so you're left with these, you know, right. calendar Wednesday, right, you're mm -hmm. left right. with these sort of procedures, for the sake of procedures, yes. but that doesn't, doesn't win you any, yeah. and, I mean, you can see some stuff on the edges that they might do, or might like to do, like reinstating the Gephardt rule, so that they can pass the debt limit, all right. the automatic votes, and things like that, or the earmarks. I mean, the term limits for committee chairs is a rules change if they put it in the House rules and stuff like that. But I don't, 
I don't, you know, everyone who wants a rules change wants the big rule changes that either re-empower the committee or re-empower individuals to offer amendments on the floor, and I just don't see it coming. Well, I mean, no, I don't, I don't see there's that There's no coming. evidence. There's no that, incentive yeah. for leadership well, to give the, up that kind of power. At the end of the day, the differences within the party are small. They seem magnified, but they're smaller compared to the differences that, between the parties. That, right, that's the crazy thing is that, you know, we have these suggestions that kind of uh, homogenous parties empower leadership, right? That's kind of like the received wisdom of political science. And so we have what is essentially a homogenous party relative to the other party, so they're going to empower their leadership, but it's not homogenous enough to prevent kind of defections on the floor over leadership votes and things like that. Which Plus, is, slim, these are slim majorities right, right, and right. puts them at risk sure. for these right. even small, yes. not very well organized factions. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, the only other time that they've actually decentralized the process was 1910. When they got rid of the speaker, and that was as homogenized. That it's was a, a uniform. Well, it is. It, it's, it's, it's sorry. <laughs> Them's the brakes. Right? So, it's like the only like a major decentralization away from the speakership. Yeah. You have discharge changes. Yeah, but that's. I mean, that's that's tweaking, that's tweaking, <laughs> tweaking the system. Seventies or seventies. Well, that's decentralizing away from the committee system. Right, that's not decentralizing away from the speaker. Right. The 30s are essentially tweaking a system that's already in place, and that's a committee system as well. The only time that they've actually removed a speaker from power was 1910 and significantly got rid, affected the rules committee. And that's really, as you mentioned, the, the crux of it all. That's, I mean, that's everything. If you want to decentralize power away from the speaker, you take away the rules committee. Um, and that happened in a homogenized Congress with high party unity. It was the third highest party unity Congress in that entire period between 1879 and 1911. Um, but uh, we don't see those factions breaking down. And like Sarah points out, there's no sort of natural unity between the two parties in the way there was between progressive Republicans uh, in the, the early 1900s yeah. and Democrats at that point in time. Um, maybe that's changing, maybe it's not. Politics is changing, I don't know how yet, but it's, it's certainly something's shifting, but I don't see that alliance between parties right now that would enable that. In addition to that, these are in caucus rules now that right. empower the party leadership. Right. So it's not even a, right. a rules institutional change that yeah. you could do to enable this process that would remove the speaker's power over the rules committee. But you can imagine. It now has to be an right. intra You can imagine a majoritarian party that's very highly, tightly wound to a single party still decentralizing, right? Like this is the Freedom Caucus issue is that yes. they're willing to buck the procedural coalition at very much times, but they aren't doing it to leverage decentralization of the institution. They're doing it to get show message votes that they can take to their constituents right. on the floor. Like, they would prefer to vote against the leadership on the floor than to actually decentralize the rules and empower committees that they might chair. I, yeah, right. I think it's a credit-claiming exercise. Right. right. And there's essentially a mixed message here. They did do some very, very, very tiny reforms to the steering committee at the, when they when they brought Paul Ryan and they adjusted they made he a smaller lost a he, only, vote. he lost a vote he lost a vote he lost five you get four Paul wow. that's it we're drawing the line of four um, so, I mean he still has it effectively didn't change the system at right. all but it was Look tweaks it, in that direction yeah. and I think there's some very very mixed preferences among that coalition itself I think Justin Amash has very clear preferences about what kind of procedural leadership he sees but I think he's also like him and Thomas Massey may be the only ones, right? <laughs> Out of that entire cadre who's much more policy-oriented, uh, politically-oriented, and message-oriented. Um, so, uh, again, they would be the most ripe ones, but they're also the least likely to reach across the aisle and form a coalition with Democrats to, to enact some of these changes. Right, well, the, you know, the reformers around town will say we need strong committee systems, but that's just incompatible. At least historically, we don't really have very many, if any, episodes of periods of strong committees and strong parties, right? Because outside forces and current right, law rank and file and want leaders to protect them from yeah. from what's yeah. out there. And that's not really compatible with empowering chairs who are going to have their own agendas. I don't have the historical chops that Sarah or Josh or Laura have on this, I think. But what about the post-Civil War Republicans, right? Between 18... 75 and the Reed reforms, right? Isn't that an era? My received wisdom is that this is an era of actual strong committee government under the guise of strong partisanship. Is that not true? Uh, <coughs> um, certainly. Sarah, do you want to start with that first? Probably so I think probably certainly not the degree of textbook Congress committee power that you see in the wake of uh, in the wake of getting rid of Cam. Very Cam, okay. Right, and yeah. we have intense electoral competition sure. between the sure. parties, which probably 
And you don't really, you're right, you don't have the rules committee. Until um, 18th. You don't have special mm-hmm. rules that are allowed yeah. in the majority. Of them. It's just not comparable yeah. examples. Yeah. Well, it isn't, it isn't, right? So you had parties or committees that were functioning, but at the same time, 1880 marks a very important change where the rules committee is established as a standing committee. The speaker becomes chair, and then shortly after that, they start using special rules. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's sort of like the advent of a one modern legislative process in a way, and then two, uh, a growing uh, party influence until you get to read, and then it just blows up. Um, on all fronts, um, but it, it, I, don't, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that the committee chairs were like especially uh, free and strong because at that point in time everybody was being appointed to committees and chairing committees based on the speaker's preferences, um, right. no, and they're the making explicit trade-offs about who can sit on which committee and who can chair which committee based on their policy preferences. There's a great example in like 1873 or 1877 where um, I think it was Kiefer. Um, who says, like, you can chair the banking committee, you just can't take up the legislation you want to pass because I know you don't like banks. <laughs> so um, there was an explicit trade-off between being able to chair the banking and currency committee and being able to pass the policies that this particular legislator had had pressed in previous Congresses. Um, so I don't know how free or independent that committee system really was of the party leadership. So. Congress history. Yes. Six <laughs> beers in. Sir, Josh's specialty is legislative procedure. Can you tell? <laughs> You've been writing about the Fed recently? Yeah. Uh, sure. You want to tell us about that? <laughs> yeah. Please. Sarah has a. Uh, this is a warning. This is an area I'm completely <laughs> ignorant of. <laughs> I'm looking to get educated here. Do not listen to anything I said. <laughs> Uh, Tell so us I, about the myth of independence. independence. <laughs> so, uh, so I have a neighbor uh, who's in the financial markets, and the day uh, the first TARP vote went down, he's in his office watching CNBC, and I'm in my office watching C-SPAN. And I think suddenly his screen like went to split, so CNBC was watching C-SPAN watch the TARP bill like hmm. plummet as the market <laughs> plummeted. He's like, mm-hmm. what the heck is going on? Yeah. <laughs> so it began this very decade-long conversation about this interplay between what Congress is doing and what financial markets are doing and its impact on the on the economy. Hmm. So first I want to write a book thought maybe about sort of what is it different about the financial crisis and how Congress is responding. And then didn't look like anything other than Mayhew 101. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we got to talking about what, what was different here, sort of the behavior of the Fed, uh, and then led us to questions about why does the Fed look the way it is? Why is it still a right. Federal Reserve? Where's the power? Why do we think of it as independent when we know that Congress is the one that wrote the Federal Reserve Act and can change the Federal Reserve mm-hmm. Act? And so we ended up talking a lot about looking at the ways in which financial and economic crisis, how does that trigger these electoral cycles in Congress? We get electoral change. We get blame, like a cycle of blame, so that voters don't blame lawmakers. They blame the yep. Fed. Yep. They reopen the act, and sure enough, yeah. they read it. Sometimes they clip the wings of the Fed. They take away their powers, despite the fact that we think that the Fed is like independent. right? They clip their wings. They take away their lending powers. Sometimes they give them more responsibilities that they don't want, hmm. right? but all the better to blame them in the future when they yeah. screw that up, yeah. too. Uh, and sure enough, that's sort of what we can see that historically, and we saw it in, in the wake of the crisis with Dodd-Frank, blame the Fed, open up the act, cut their wings, make their job harder, make them the financial regulator, the Uber regulator. And so it's this effort to try to think about the ways in which sort of we call it, well, we were going to call the book monetary politics, um, which is really <laughs> what, it, what it is, yeah. uh, but the publisher thought just too obscure. <laughs> 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 That's called myth of independence. Yeah, so, so crazy people. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, I mean, this is you know we're we're getting into a, a cycle where we're going to see a lot of oversight. I mean, for for your findings on the the Federal Reserve, um, you know, you spoke about how some uh, elections are more kind of salient for monetary policy issues. What were the conditions under which uh, you you saw that Congress wanted to either um, d- direct or constrain uh, the, the, the Fed more? Like, what, what, are, what are the patterns that you found? So here's the thing. So uh, the co-author, Mark Spadell, and I, when we, when we went back historically, it turns out that there's, oftentimes it's just clip, clipping wings. Oftentimes it's, so then context, is about 18 uh, major changes over a 100-year period. Right. About a third of them, <laughs> roughly, clip wings. A third are roughly um, empowering. But 
as often there it's both at the same time. Interesting. And, and so I don't know that we ever really we didn't really pull out a dynamic that would lead you to think, right, when are they really gonna screw the Fed and when are they gonna um, give it more power? But neither really terribly welcomed by the Fed. I mean there are small periods where the Fed will say it would be helpful if we could so today they have the ability to pay what we call interest on reserves. So banks put their excess reserves and the Fed pays them <laughs> Imagine Maxine Waters loves this, right? Pays them money <laughs> to keep their money parked at the mm. bed, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. That was right. something that the Fed had requested before the crisis, right? Crisis happens, and they said, gee, we're going to need this as a tool when there's too much money in the system. Well, we want to pay interest on reserves. So sometimes the requests are coming from the Fed, but usually when Congress opens up the act, they get, they get worried, right? Mm-hmm. Especially now, they were, they were worried about audit the Fed, uh, worried about more transparency moves, right? There's always something that if if the if the Fed were truly independent, <laughs> wouldn't have to worry about yeah. this. But they they understand, right? All these articles this past week about Jay Powell and yeah. Pound, all the articles that he's wearing out the carpets. The giant marble building. Everything in there is marble and loud and noisy and beautiful. I will never forget the day that tarp bill failed in the floor of the house. One, because the tarp bill failed in the floor of the house. But second, I was in the Senate, and with the caveat that I wasn't on the Hill on September 11th, that is the only day I've seen a United States senator sprint down a hallway and terrified. (laughs) And, And... it really did have that feeling on the Hill, like the world was collapsing in on things. Um, but the leaders have just lost control and they were crashing the markets. And it was a, uh, it's an underrated, like really important day in congressional history. Mm. Sure, and, and also for, for, for markets generally and yeah. learning that, gee, um, what actually goes on in Washington and their failure to act is gonna have repercussions, right? And certainly 2011 with the, the really first round of this, mm-hmm. there were previous ones, but real first round of, are they really gonna push the country to default, right? right? Versus subsequent, I think markets have already priced in the fact that it'll be a little scary, but right. they're not gonna they default. But a learning process for markets to- They're not gonna default, we think. <laughs> <laughs> we're pretty sure <laughs> now. <big> right. <laughs> and you, uh, true or false, you co-taught a class with the Fed chairman once. <laughs> um, so <laughs> <laughs> that's a true. That's true. We were I'll answer for the podium in the same classroom, but on different Tuesdays. Oh, uh, okay. uh, so uh, Ben Bernanke wanted to, as part of his sort of transparency and explaining what the Fed was doing because of all these public attacks on the Fed, and a truly independent Fed probably wouldn't care what the public or lawmakers think, but right. wanted to sort of ex- explain what the Fed was doing, and so he wanted to teach class and. He could have done that at Princeton because he's from there, but he wanted to do something more broadly and accessible. So he came to GW, and they basically said, great. He said, he's got four lectures, um, but we'll create a, a business school course around them. So they rounded it out with uh, we'll do the non-chairman of the Fed. And he was like, the only time I've gone to class, and it's like, you know, bomb sniffing the yeah, yeah, yeah. But the slides of his talk, they were like, little like they were all like footnoted and like the sourcing and oh, so wow. he like the fed staff must have been like and he had like this painting from the 1920s the markets in your classroom <laughs> 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 yeah, i'm just copy pasting and slapping my the legal office right? yeah i put the s on all of my <laughs> photoshop pictures does, does writing in the federal reserve politics space expose you to sort of like the internet conspiracy theorists like bombarding you with well, only if you stuff? have a, only have a book called myth of but if you Google them, Google them. <laughs> Well, that's, what, that's what's really interesting about the Fed. I mean, it, Congress is always, always has a reason to blame them for one reason or another. Either they're doing too much and they're accumulating too much wealth, then why are you doing this? Or you're doing too little, why isn't the economy going well? It's always a lose-lose situation. It seems like the perfect sort of foil for members of Congress to use. For sure, but particularly when the economy is doing poorly. Yeah. Right? right, so <laughs> Jay Powell, all right, he's getting all these kudos for spending time on the Hill, reaching out to Republicans. My guess is he's reaching out to Democrats, too. But enable, and the articles are all saying, look, he sort of got them uh, calm and he's not being attacked. Yeah. Look at the economy. I mean, it is, they're at their mandates that Congress gave them. And so, you know, it's tempting to say, gee, outreach by the 
Fed chair makes a difference, but it's also conditional on how the economy is doing. But it's a, and I think it's a good sign that it's that that the Fed understands, as Bernanke said, Congress is the boss, all right, and that that they don't just give us our goals and tell us what to do. They sometimes tell us how we're going to do it, right? So the next time there's a financial crisis, can they just take that Bernanke playbook, right? Can they break the glass, open up, that right. they bought all these assets, right. they bought mortgage-backed securities, right? Can they run all those plays again? I think, I think that's what's politically, I wonder, not whether, right, they'll have the, right? It was all experimental back then. Right. Is your, is your book, and I have not read it, um, is your book strictly focused on Congress and the Fed mm-hmm. or the president, too? Because we're seeing President Trump sort of interact with the federal chairman's <laughs> tweets, which seems a little more unstructured and dangerous than perhaps clipping and augmenting powers. I could do this in a phone call, but it's not broadcast. There's no 40 million plus people. <laughs> so the, the president of the book comes in in the shape of the legislative process. So what we're doing now is... Um, collecting all New York Times mentions in articles of the Fed chair and president back to Roosevelt. Wow. That's Thank awesome. you, Mike Burkinsari, in turns. Uh, we are all collectively basically trying to code these articles to see, are these, is this just incidental, right? Trash them. Or are these signals coming from the president to the Fed chair and from the Fed, and from the Fed chair back to the president? And if they're signaling each other, is this dovish? like? ease up or these hawkish up and so the coding (laughs) oh let me tell you about the 1960s coding is going a little slowly but a couple couple things so we know that we know we think there's this norm where presidents don't comment but that's like a Clinton invention and so one question is how was Clinton convinced that it was in his electoral interest to keep his mouth shut Mm. on the dollar and on on the Fed but before Clinton it's, and it's in the papers, that's right? That's so fascinating. Not, that's not fascinating. Just the, like, Linda Johnson hauling up the chair and hauling him to the ranch and, you know, giving the Johnson treatment. But there's lots of interactions yeah. going on being documented. Uh, and so in that sense, Trump is, on that sense, right, Trump's just playing pre-Clinton yeah. presidents who, who know that cost of money is going to affect their electoral prospects. What's, what's different about, <laughs> at least so far, if you look at these episodes where Things have heated up in the past. There's a lot of signaling going up in the past. It's because the economy's not doing well. Mm. And right. so mm. on the little line of economy uh, presidential signals, <laughs> like, like Trump's just like, right. stand outlier. up here. <laughs> Should I draw that for the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. She's pointing very high. So very, very, very high. <laughs> so in that sense, it just doesn't make much sense. Mm. Right. And then there's the question, does it? matter, right? And it's really obviously hard to disentangle what the Fed or what's counterfactual. What would the Fed do if Trump hadn't gotten involved um, versus right. what are they doing given maybe right. they're reacting. But mm. And it's a public signal, so like, how does the market yeah. it take this too preemptively in front right. of the Fed getting it, right? Yes, and so you can look at the, the contracts on when they're going to um, uh, raise rates and that mm. doesn't seem to be anything out of the ordinary as best they can tell, but things are changing, right? There's all news that the what is this pal said the other week? He said, setting rates these days, it's like you're in a room and the lights are out and you're feeling around for the furniture. It's <laughs> <laughs> so a great, great, great confidence. Really confident. Really confident. Yeah. Yeah. Sky higher economic yeah. confidence. It sounds like my dad trying to get out of a fire in the fire department. <laughs> Where's the door? <laughs> you have to raise a lockdown. It's like feeling your way through the dark. Yeah, but if, if you had Trump leaning on you, Oh, we're just data looking at the data. We're going to go wherever the data sends us to, mm. right? It's brilliant, yeah. right? Takes the probably takes Trump off your and Trump today, I think, interpreted or maybe it was Kudlow said, "Oh yeah, they're probably they're not going to be raising rates." But the president has no legal authority to remove anyone from the Fed. He could he could not renew their term. I mean, or is this is this one of those esoteric legal debates about the appointments clause? And things yeah, like that? so I think this is, and there's a historian legalist financial historian Peter Conte Brown at mm-hmm. Penn who's kind of worked his way through this. So maybe this is just a poor legislative <laughs> drafting. So governors on the Fed, of which the chair is one, can mm-hmm. only be removed for cause. And there's a whole constitutional yep. legal blah blah that I don't understand about that. But the, the But statute, it's very real, that part. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but the statute that 
there shall be four-year terms subject to present, making the chair present appointed Senate confirmed position independent of the fact that he's governor. governor. That part of statute is 1977, mm. right? And they didn't say anything about removal. Oh, wow. So, uh-huh. I mean, Yellen it, didn't finish out her term. I mean, well, so she, she finished her... Right, right, right. She finished yeah. her chair term, but yeah. not her. She, she left for her governor's term. Right. So Trump, if you're literally reading the statute. Right. It's just a norm holding together the yeah, chairman Yeah, that you don't fire. You don't fire the chair of the Fed. Maybe pull, you'd think if it took you so long to, quote, unquote, fire sessions. <laughs> right. right <yeah. laughs> you haven't quite yet fired Mueller. Like, maybe right. there's restraint here that markets would not. <laughs> yeah. 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 Happy, right? It's not wow. priced in in the market. Norm's norm holding in the market. This podcast is not helping that, by the yeah. way. It's like, the president could do it. It's okay. Yeah. How's the trade war going? Seriously, like Monday after yeah. your Argentina, the G20, yeah. everybody's ecstatic. They believed him that they had this great deal, and then yeah. Tuesday they were like, oh, oh just kidding. Oh, man. JK. <laughs> All right. Boom. Well, uh, we are definitely out of time. Uh, but, Sarah, thank you so much for coming in. It has Thanks been a pleasure to yeah. like, come in and talk about all this different stuff. Uh, so that's it for this week. I, uh, we are signing off. Yep. See you next time. Bye. Adios.